Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series Madoff, The Monster of Wall Street. People think they know this story. They think it's a story about one man. But when you pull back the curtain, it's actually about so much more. Today, we're talking to director Joe Berlinger. Bernie Madoff was considered an elder statesman of the stock market, a pioneer of electronic trading, and a steady hand during times of economic crisis. But hidden away from his legitimate securities firm, Madoff was running an unregulated hedge fund for exclusive high-end investors who enjoyed consistently high returns. But it was all a Ponzi scheme, and those investors were swindled out of tens of billions of dollars. Madoff, the monster of Wall Street, chronicles the rise and fall of a stock market giant. It also exposes the many missed opportunities to protect his victims and discover his scam. Harry wrote a thesis to the SEC with 29 red flags. Now, these are not innuendos. Everything was delineated point by point, but they ignored it. And I'm joined by director Joe Berlinger. Joe, welcome back to You Can't Make This Up. Thanks for having me again. Great to talk to you once again. (laughs) As a director, how did you think about making Bernie Madoff's story relatable and making it resonate? Yeah, great question. Um, I'm fascinated by this story, always have been. But truthfully, I'm a bit of a stock market geek who watches CNBC in the morning from time to time. So for me, the stuff you know, is a little more intelligible. And so working off of that base of knowledge, uh, I wanted to convey the story to an audience in a way that everyone could understand. Um, And really the bottom line is, to me, this is a Shakespearean tragedy of epic proportions. And focusing on those elements of the hubris, the rise and fall, the destruction of, uh, of his own family, uh, for me, that provides an element of kind of a financial thriller. So my goal was to dig deep and explain exactly how the Ponzi took place, but do it in a way that people could understand, because I think that's been the missing piece in a lot of the previous reporting. Um, and so that's that was one way. And the other way that I wanted to make it engaging is to kind of reinvent the language of recreation, 
you know, we use recreations in this show, but in a very robust and I think innovative way, we basically shot the recreations at the same time as we shot the interviews and you see the camera literally handing off from interview to recreation or vice versa. Uh, And I think the show has a very nice visual style that allows you to understand a lot of these concepts. But really for me, how that Ponzi operated and some of the financial terms are not as complicated. You know, Wall Street likes to make things seem more complicated and Bernie liked to make things seem more complicated than they were. But I wanted to simplify those explanations and hopefully I achieved that. Now, it's no spoiler to say that Madoff died in 2021, but we get to hear him in his own words thanks to the recorded depositions from a civil suit. When I started doing business with all my clients, I was a little guy with nothing. I was this little kid from Queens, didn't go to Harvard and so on. Why would anybody trust me to give me business, turn their money over to me? But the first thing I learned, whatever you do in this business, never break your word. Your word was your bond, literally, and that was it. You trusted everybody. What did you learn about Bernie Madoff from those tapes that you didn't know before that maybe we didn't see in the news coverage of him? I actually came to believe that it wasn't greed that motivated him. Uh, he actually made less money off the Ponzi than, than some of his big investors like Jeffrey Pickhauer. He's a guy who just desperately needed to be in a position of power, needed to be revered. Uh, and he became addicted to being the guy, you know, that everyone turned to. And, and he used that to, to, to fool and betray people. Now, obviously, you, you can't get inside Madoff's head for us, but I, I did see all these really interesting clues in, in your film about what made him tick. And I just I'm curious to know what your thoughts are. I mean, one of them, of course, is that he had this like vision of his physical space in the office, like everything had to be perfect. So this is mon- monochromatic space and shades of black and gray that he could be this like lovely person and then on a dime just be like a tyrant. And everybody kind of was walking on eggshells around him. But it was also a family. Um, what just what did you make of him just as a as a human being and as a person? And, and what do you think all those things reveal about him? Like type A, but also scary, like, you know, he's a classic narcissist who you know, has no empathy for other people, but loves being adored. You know, he loves his, the adoration of his clients, of his family, um, and is and was an utter control freak, which is ironic because a Ponzi scheme is something where by definition, inevitably you're going to lose control. And I think his fastidiousness, you know, employees talked about how you couldn't have certain things on your desk. The computer had to be arranged a certain way. No pictures. Coffee cups had to be arranged a certain way. And he would come and literally move things around on the desk and be that fastidious. But he was also a guy who would turn around and pay for somebody's wedding, uh, pay for somebody's college education, uh, was very generous with his employees. And to his employees of the legitimate business, because that's what a lot of people don't understand about this story, is that there was a legitimate business and the Ponzi scheme, but the, those who worked for his legitimate business thought he was a, you know, a Wall Street mastermind, a brilliant, a brilliant guy. And so people revered him and knew that he had these kind of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde moments. But for me, all of that fastidiousness, the cleaning of other people's desks, this was something he could control. 
because the rest of his life was on the verge of spinning out of control, which, which it took decades to, for that spinning out to happen, but it eventually did. Now, we learned that he had these humble beginnings in finance. He was an accountant who kind of relied on his disapproving father-in-law for clients. Uh, that, that relationship sort of was important in some ways, but at one point he lost the clients $30,000 and had to borrow money from his father-in-law. And I think one of your interview subjects said this was the moment where he had to choose between being a liar or a failure, right? Yeah, exactly. This was very early in his career. This was kind of a foundational moment that kind of set him on his path. You know, poor kid from Queens, looked across the river to Manhattan, wanted to be on Wall Street, wanted to make money, didn't want to be the failure that his father was. Uh, and so he set up shop uh, as a, as a stockbroker in the early 60s. Uh, his father-in-law, Sal Alpern, was a an accountant he gave Bernie the opportunity to manage some money for some of his accounting clients. Uh, and Bernie initially was doing a very good job, but he invested uh, their money into some highly speculative stocks in the early 60s. And in 1962, there was a, a well-known market crash and all of that money evaporated. And instead of turning to his clients and saying, hey, I screwed up, I've lost your money, he went to his father-in-law who loaned him the $30,000. He gave the $30,000 back to his clients. And he looked like a genius because in one of the worst market crashes up until that time, uh, everyone else had lost tremendous amounts of money. And he told his clients that he got out at the right time and kept them whole. And at that point, he had to look at himself in the mirror. And as one of the interview subjects uh, says... At that intersection, he had to accept being a liar or a failure. And the choice he made was he could live with himself as a liar much more easily than he could live with himself as a failure. And that kind of set the path for all the things that happened in the future. Now, of course, a lot of questions about like Ruth and her part and, and, and her partnership with Bernie. She had an office, obviously, in his in his office in the Lipstick Building. But we see in your documentary that she was right there at the very beginning, had a desk across from his in the accountant's office. And their partnership and their marriage, obviously, uh, was a very real thing. But I think about that loan and those kinds of moments, like what, what were they talking about at the dinner table <laughs> at that time, you know? It's a good question. I've debated this throughout the entire production. I dug deep. I don't believe Ruth knew what was going on, you know? I, I just, just all the evidence points to the fact that he really did keep this from her. Um, the same thing with the sons. It's, you know, the, the two sons were principals in the business, and I don't, I don't think that they are without responsibility, but I think it was a willingness to not engage and a blindness, but not an understanding that there was a Ponzi scheme going on. But they should have known better, as should have many other financial institutions that gave this guy money to invest without doing any due diligence. I, I didn't time this production to come out around the time of the FTX collapse and Sam Bankman-Fried but here again, we see people who should have known better, who should have done the due diligence, taking other people's money, giving it to FTX, and allowing that money to be diverted to shore up uh, Sam Bankman-Fried's hedge fund, Alameda. 
So you see, you see this still goes on. To me, the importance of this show is as a cautionary tale to show that, you know, Wall Street is not your friend. Right. You know, Wall Street is there. It's a for-profit business. You, you really need to be careful. Yeah. Well, I, there is a difference to me between the Sam Bankman-Fried story and Madoff. I mean, Madoff was like a man in some ways who was seen as like too big to fail, right? Like, I, I think about the sons and, and what you were saying, and it's like, the plausible deniability part of it, this blindness of sort of like, how could it possibly be? I mean, he like founded NASDAQ. I mean, he was like on the, all these boards. And he did have this really strong good guy reputation that was built on like real world activity. And as you said, he had this legitimate business that was very successful. And then there was what he did on Black Monday uh, in 1986, it was right, where he made everyone in his firm continue to execute orders when no one else was doing it. So there was real stuff there that people could hang their hat on with him, right? Here's a guy who was successful in his own right and, and would have been successful. He was he popularized electronic trading. Uh, he created what's now called the NASDAQ out of a, a, a disheveled off-market, off-exchange stock markets. He became a revered elder statesman uh, of Wall Street where the SEC actually went to him for advice. Mm. Uh, And yet that was all a front for his his illegal activities, which, you know, he seemed to have this need to do both because he certainly would have had, you know, a very good career had he not uh, engaged in the Ponzi scheme. Although by the year 2000, his legitimate business, which was his pride and joy, uh, was nearing insolvency. And so that Ponzi scheme was used to inject almost $800 million worth of, of cash in, into his legitimate business. There was obviously this operation on the 19th floor, which was the legit one, and the operation on the 17th floor, which was the not legit one, making all the statements on those pieces of paper. Which, <laughs> on the dot matrix one, printer, yeah. As, as one of your interviews pointed out, like, those didn't look real, but people still liked them. The um, willingness of people to believe is 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 a very important theme of the show. I mean, everybody looked the other way. The hedge funds that right. were making money looked the other way because the the they were all making so much money off of Bernie. Uh, regular investors should have known better because even the most basic thing, when you buy a stock, if I buy 100 shares of AT&T in my Charles Schwab account, even if I buy one share of stock, you get every year an annual report from that company. You get proxy statements if you're not going to attend the annual meeting. His clients got none of that because right. no, not, no stocks were being traded. There were so many red flags to this scheme that sophisticated investors should have discovered this within minutes, as does the whistleblower Harry Markop- Markopoulos in the show. Within four minutes, he's looking at the, the stated returns. And he literally said to his colleague, as we see in the show, that, This looks like it's a Ponzi scheme. It's one page with unbelievable performance numbers, almost no losses. And I'm looking at the characteristics of the portfolio and saying, look, the returns are like this, 45 degree angle, straight line. He says, I can tell you right from the get go, this is a fraud and it's possibly a Ponzi scheme. And he went to the SEC not once, but five times laying it out for them as clear as day that this is, you know, all of the reasons why they should take a look at it. And they never did. They did They did no investigation. The, the dot matrix thing reminds me of those old white shoe law firms that are also down on Wall Street where they still don't use like email and stuff. They do exist. Like there are still some like very old fashioned 
old money, like, and, and maybe people thought it's just the way Bernie does it. I don't know. Um, but can you talk a little bit about like who the ideal employees were for the 17th floor? Well, the, you know, uh, on the 19th floor, as you said, it was a white shoe buttoned up, impeccably arranged space full of college graduates who understand finance and are, who are engaged in, you know, the market making business, which is a market maker is basically the, the middleman. You know, whenever you buy and sell a stock, there needs to be a middleman. And that's the function that Bernie played as a market maker. The 17th floor were full of people who never dreamed that they would have an opportunity to make any kind of money on Wall Street, let alone the kinds of money they were rewarded with. They were did not have college educations, people who just revered and, and felt a bond with Bernie because he was giving them the kind of life they never would have had without uh, the scheme. And I mean, this went on for decades and they knew what they were doing was wrong. They, you know, they justified it to themselves that they thought that Bernie had the assets hidden away somewhere. They, they all claimed when it all came crashing down that they didn't know they were involved in a Ponzi scheme and they felt that Bernie was good for the money. But they also admitted that they knew exactly what they were doing, which was creating fake trades, fake statements, and that no trading was going on. That's obviously still illegal and still immoral. So at the beginning, you talked a little bit about how you wanted to do take a whole new approach to recreations uh, in this documentary. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because there there was a lot of really interesting visuals here, obviously. Can you just, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your creative vision there. For many of these documentaries, we bring people into a, to a space and light and prop the interview frame to make you feel like we're in that, the home of the person, you know, as opposed to, in the old days, we used to go to the home of the person and or the office and whatever it looked like you did, you know, you, you made a quick decision where to shoot the shot. You go into the prosecutor's office. And if the, if the office is messy, you then go into the conference room and, oh, the conference room looks worse. Let's go back to the office and you just make it work. <laughs> Today, for a lot of these documentaries that I myself do, we, oh, I feel we overly art direct a frame that looks like we're in somebody's home and give it, give it all this production value. You know, so I was, I was kind of, uh, pushing against that idea. And also I wanted to make the 19th floor and the 17th floor characters in, in the drama, uh, because they do play such an essential role in, in, in how people perceive Bernie as a business and what was secretly going on on the 17th floor. So I instead brought all of our interview subjects to a set that I created. We rebuilt the 17th floor. We built a set of the 19th floor. We built a set of the 17th floor. And all of the interview subjects were brought into that space. So Eleanor Squilari, for example, who's Bernie's private secretary, we literally do her present day interview sitting in an exact replica of the desk she sat at on the Mm. 19th floor. He wanted to control you. And it's because he disapproved of you that he could control you. Bernie could, you know, flip the switch in a second. I saw times when he could be so kind and so caring and times where he could be so brutal what the hell do you think you're and doing? just stop you dead in your tracks. And so I wanted to play with this idea that his entire operation was smoke and mirrors. So 
Actually, if you look closely, you'll see Easter eggs planted throughout the show. Like you'll see a movie light, you'll see a grip stand, you know, the third episode, we actually reveal that he's just walking on a set and that the whole thing is an illusion. People's willingness to suspend their disbelief and believe in something that was so clearly too good to be true was something I wanted to visualize. And so when you, if you watch the show, and once you get to that point where we reveal that he, we're actually on a set and the whole thing has been smoke and mirrors, I think if you watch the show again, you'll even see more clues as to how I'm pretending we're in the world of reality. But in fact, uh, it's all just kind of, uh, 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 you know, we, it was, it's all just a traveling circus and he took advantage of people's uh, misperceptions. Um, so, you know, and I thought it would be fun and interesting and different. You know, normally when you do these kinds of a show, these kinds of shows, you shoot the interviews first, you rough cut the show, you start putting in the archival footage, and then wherever there are, there's a need for a recreation, a hole in the edit, or you just, you need a visual or it would enhance the storytelling, those recreations are shot towards the end of the editing. For this, which was much more difficult to pull off, I, I, did the recreations simultaneously to doing the interviews. So while we were doing the interviews, we would, the camera would drift off and reenact certain things that the interview subjects were telling us in that moment. Um, So it just created this kind of illusion of reality. But when you really think about it, why is, why is Eleanor Squillari sitting in the desk that she sat in on the 19th floor 20 years ago, if it's a present day interview. So I was just, playing with this idea of smoke and mirrors. So there was this group of four big investors who put the most money in. Um, can you remind us who they were? Yeah, I mean, there was there were four foundational investors that invested with Madoff. Uh, Jeffrey Pickauer, Norman Levy, Stanley Chase, and Carl Shapiro. These were big individual investors who moved lots of money in and out of uh, the Ponzi scheme. I believe three out of the four of them thought it was just a legitimate fun, but much has been made. And I believe is the case that Jeffrey Pickhauer actually was aware it was a Ponzi scheme and kind of used that to control uh, and manipulate a Madoff. Bernie's own suspicion was that Jeffrey Pickhauer had twigged what he was doing, understood that Bernie couldn't say no to him and was going to milk his Madoff account for everything he could. And indeed, no one made more money. No one got richer from the Madoff Ponzi scheme than Jeffrey Pickhauer did, not even Madoff. Uh, and so at certain points, the f- more people were withdrawing money than putting money in, which is the opposite of what a Ponzi scheme should be. A Ponzi scheme is, you know, taking new investor money to pay off old investors. But if new investor money is not coming in and old investors are asking for their money back for normal reasons, you get a cash crunch. So Pickhauer would come in and, and literally, you know, shore up the hedge fund with hundreds of millions of dollars. But because he had that control over Madoff, he used to dictate outrageous terms. In, in one year, he made 950% on his money when the rest of the market was making 8%. And so he siphoned off almost $7 billion over the course of the Ponzi scheme uh, in profits for himself. But he's the guy who made the most money on the Ponzi scheme. I believe he was fully aware of it and he manipulated Madoff for his own gain, including 
at the end of the year, even though he made hundreds of millions of dollars in profits, he would call into the one of the people who ran the disbursement of cash under the Ponzi scheme and would demand that they create statements showing that he had a loss that year instead of a profit. You know, so there was tax fraud going on, as well as I believe his knowledge that he knew there was a Ponzi scheme. Unfortunately, he was never brought to justice because he died of a heart attack after uh, it was found in his pool. Some people speculated, you know, it was suicide or a mob hit. But the evidence shows he just basically had a heart attack, probably from the stress of what was about to come down. But the FBI in, in the show tells us that had had he lived, he would have been indicted along with yeah. Madoff. Can you just go into a little bit of detail about how it was this whole thing ended up falling apart in 2007? Well, to me, the, the scariest thing about the entire story and why it's such a cautionary tale is that the only reason Bernie Madoff was brought down was a once in a century black swan event called the financial crisis. You know, basically in 2008, Wall Street was responsible for taking really bad mortgages, slicing and dicing them up and redistributing them as investment vehicles. And all of a sudden, what were once junk mortgages called subprime mortgages that were given to people who never should have taken loans out all of these were sliced and diced and turned into securities and all of a sudden given a triple A rating by the investment community and the ratings agencies and sold to the public. All of a sudden, people started defaulting on their mortgages. It started multiplying and the entire house of cards blew up and caused the financial crisis. I mean, that's, that's it in a nutshell. And because there was a financial crisis and a global meltdown of all markets, people needed their money at all costs. So every investment of every kind was being called in. At this point, Bernie has, in theory, $64 billion. It was really only $19 billion in cash. But with the fictitious profits, people thought there was $64 billion in Bernie's hedge fund. And everyone just started calling their money and nobody was investing. Everybody was taking money out of everything because there was a massive collapse going on of the financial system. And so that's when the jig was up because a Ponzi scheme ends when no new money is coming in, but all the old money has to go out. So he couldn't meet redemption requests, not even close. And, and it became this legend that Bernie single-handedly, you know, did this Ponzi scheme, and it allowed a lot of the witting and unwitting co-conspirators to get away with it, which is one of the focuses in this show that I think makes it new and different is we focus on a lot of the co-conspirators. J.P. Morgan Chase, for example, you know, billions of dollars were going through one checking account, which was the Ponzi checking account, which, you know, they called the 703 account because those are the last three digits of the account number. But normally when you have billions and billions of dollars flowing through one checking account and the transactions don't make sense, it's supposed to trigger what's called a a suspicious activity report. Any transaction over $10,000 should trigger an investigation. And J.P. Morgan Chase looked the other way because they had a checking account with billions of dollars in it. So this show really kind of dissects people like Pickhour, who enabled the Ponzi, J.P. Morgan Chase, which enabled the Ponzi. You know, I don't think they knew a Ponzi existed, but they certainly, you know, were negligent in their responsibilities to to do what they are supposed to do, which is to have a view inside this account and understand what the business is. The, The failures of the SEC are 
incredible. There's that one moment in the show where finally, after five years of this whistleblower giving so much information to the SEC that was irrefutable, all these red flags, they finally start making inquiries. And on a Friday afternoon, Bernie decides to take matters into his own hands, goes to the office of the SEC by himself. He knows that Friday afternoon that if they call any of those banks expecting to hear that they trade options with him, or if they check that clearinghouse account, expecting to find the billions of dollars of assets that are supposed to be there but aren't, the fraud is over. You know, this is a Friday afternoon. He fully expects to be arrested by Monday because all the SEC had to do was pick up the phone and say, hey, Bernie Madoff, account number X, can you tell us what's in in the account? And they would have said there's nothing in the account, you know. And yeah. that, that one phone call on a Friday afternoon could have, you know, ended another couple of years of people losing billions of dollars. It's the, the, the lack of regulatory oversight that allowed this to happen was mind boggling and still can happen today. That's why I say there are some similarities with Sam Bankman free. The SEC should have regulated crypto, should have regulated what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, someone selling a story that's too good to be true. There's to me, there are a lot of similarities. I just, I have a, just a quick question about that. Um, the SEC, I mean, he's running this unregistered hedge fund. Everybody says that people knew that they were investing their money with him. And it seems like it was this open secret that he was running a hedge fund. It was a big, that, yeah. Like the, everyone seems surprised by the Ponzi scheme, but no one seems surprised that he was running this hedge fund that he shouldn't have been running. Like, what the hell was going on with that? Exactly. He kept saying, I'm making trades for hedge funds in my market making business, but I don't run a, a hedge fund. And yet everyone was investing in, in his hedge fund. Right. And it was on, you know, Barron's ran an article in 2000 questioning his gains. You know, right. a, a, an industry right. publication called Marhedge, which was the hedge fund industry's main paper, ran an article that the, the returns are, are too good to be true. Why would this big dog on Wall Street need to be running to raise money? secretly and Teray told me that he wasn't charging him a fee to do it that made no sense at all and i'm thinking to myself bullshit it's it's absolutely mind-boggling that it was allowed to go on for you know a year let alone you know a multi-decade fraud so you mentioned the clawbacks um, after this is all over and there's a trustee that's assigned to figure it all out. There's a very thorny issue about how to make investors whole. Some of them were already wealthy. Others had accumulated a nest egg that they had entrusted Madoff with. And there was this controversial decision to claw back assets from victims who had made money on what they believed to be legitimate investments. What was the right thing to do here? Yeah, it's... um. It, it, it's a tough situation. I mean, again, a very controversial court decision was made that I disagree with, but I don't think there was any other choice because there was simply no money to pay. Right. So because there was no insurance money, they hired a trustee, Irving Picard, to oversee the liquidation of uh, of assets and to claw back money. Because over the years, if you were an older investor, say if my you know, grandfather opened up a Madoff account and used the profits over the years, taking money out every now and then to pay for college, to pay for expenses. And then, you know, my mother inherited that account 
and she also lived off it. And then now as the daughter or the, the son who gets that account, uh, the Ponzi scheme is now revealed. They are asking the, the child to pay for the debt of the grandfather. Uh, and it was just kind of a crazy way of deciding who were net winners and who were net losers. Was there another way to do it? I'm not sure. But what I find troubling is, you know, he did an amazing job of recovering $14 billion out of $19 billion. Not only did people lose their savings, but some of them, if they had taken out more money than they had put in and paid taxes on that money, all that money was clawed back uh, and given to the people who were the net losers. The biggest net losers of course, were because they were the newer investors, were the hedge funds and institutions. So a lot of money went from regular people to institutions, which I also find troubling. But I don't know if there's, I don't know if there was any other system. You know, it's it's hard to say. So Joe, you've made a pretty strong case that not enough has changed in the regulatory environment since 2008 that we should feel great about. So if I were with you at a cocktail party, I think after watching this documentary, the question I would ask you is, on a scale of one to 10, how worried should I be about my own retirement nest egg right now? Uh, well, you always have to remember that Wall Street is not your friend. They are there to make money. And so there's just, you know, some basic rules you should follow. Uh, you know, look, I think regular institutions like uh, Fidelity, Vanguard, Schwab, I, I don't think you should worry about about those things. But there's just basic rules of investing that this story illustrates the biggest of which is diversification. One reason that the victims of Madoff really got wiped out is they trusted him so much that they gave him every penny. You know, if they had given only 10% of their money to Bernie, it would have been bad to lose 10% of your money, but your life savings wouldn't have worked out. The other kind of basic rule is if something looks too good to be true, if the rest of the market is getting 5 6 7% returns and something is promising you a much higher rate of return, it, you know, if something doesn't look right, it probably isn't. And then the other thing is never invest in something that you don't fully understand yourself. If you can't explain to your spouse what you're invested in, it's probably not a good idea to be invested in that security. And perhaps if your statements come in dot matrix paper, exactly, probably a little suspect too. Exactly. Uh, Joe Berlinger, your documentary, Made Off Monster of Wall Street. It's fascinating watch and really fascinating talking with you about it. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director Joe Berlinger. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack and Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>